Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The morning of January 16, 2014, looked like any other at the Caribe Hilton in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The resort's visitors relaxed in luxury on the sunny, secluded beach. Not a single patron had any clue there was a sting operation unfolding in two adjoining hotel rooms upstairs. In one of the rooms, a special agent posing as a Texan venture capitalist negotiated with two Turkish businessmen over expensive and counterfeit chemotherapy drugs they'd smuggled into the country. In the adjoining room, another special agent, a U.S. attorney, and an entire team of translators listened in, waiting for the moment the two businessmen would incriminate themselves and admit they were trying to elude the United States government. The undercover agent had the businessman convinced he was interested in purchasing the chemo drugs as an investment, something he could later sell to doctors at a profit. In an attempt to trick the Turkish businessmen into implicating themselves, the agent let it slip that he'd left incriminating documents outlining their business proposal at his warehouse in Texas, which the FDA was preparing to raid. The two businessmen panicked at the mention of the FDA and demanded to be put on the first plane back to Turkey to escape. The undercover agent obliged, ushering them into a car headed for the San Juan airport. As soon as the car door closed behind them, the getaway vehicle was immediately surrounded by federal agents. And the sting? It wasn't CIA or FBI or even DEA. It was the FDA itself. The special agents were part of the FDA's Office of Criminal Investigations, which was established to protect American citizens from bogus, not to mention dangerous drugs, like the ones peddled by the Turkish businessmen. But many people believe that the FDA doesn't actually have our best interest at heart. Spectacles like this are meant to distract us from the agency's real agenda, which runs perpendicular to the health and safety of American citizens.
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the ParCast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, uh, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the first of two episodes about the FDA, Big Pharma, and the cure for cancer. This week, we'll be focusing on the official story of the FDA, its relationship to private pharmaceutical companies, or Big Pharma, and how the cure for cancer fits into all of this. Officially, cancer is a complicated umbrella term for various ailments with no easy single cure. In all cases, the disease involves some cells dividing uncontrollably with a risk of spreading to healthy tissue around it. And the FDA, designed to protect Americans, would never block any cure that was discovered. But we'll look into the official history and confirmed operations of the FDA to see why people think otherwise. Next week, we'll dig into the conspiracy theories surrounding the FDA. Does a cure for cancer already exist? Has Big Pharma coerced the FDA into keeping the lid on a cure so Big Pharma can keep making money off of cancer treatment? Are there even more insidious reasons the FDA and Big Pharma would want to keep the cure for cancer out of the hands of the people? But before we can discuss all that, we need to understand the FDA, its history, its scandals, and its purpose. The Food and Drug Administration is so much more than its Office of Criminal Investigations, or OCI, which we described earlier. While the OCI works to get counterfeit drugs and quack doctors off the street, the FDA's job has a much greater scope. According to the government, the FDA is responsible for, quote, protecting the public health by ensuring the safety, efficacy, and security of human and veterinary drugs biological products, medical devices, our nation's food supply, cosmetics, and products that emit radiation, end quote. The FDA also provides accurate science-based health information to the public, according to former U.S. Representative John Dingell. It's going to help the medical profession. It's going to make Americans safer. And it's going to see to it that good drugs, safe and efficacious, come more quickly to the marketplace. The FDA is responsible for approving new types of treatments and medications for illnesses like cancer, while also weeding out fake or harmful cures. Over the last 70 years, the FDA has been responsible for the approval of over 150 anti-cancer drugs. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the drugs that have been approved to treat cancer symptoms, side effects, or pain. 
hundreds of drugs related to cancer treatment exist, not to mention the thousands currently in development. Seems to me like that's a market that generates a lot of money. You're not wrong. The global oncology drug market is creeping towards $200 billion per year, with close to $100 billion of that spent in the U.S. alone. And it's pharmaceutical and research companies getting rich from this economy. In fact, it was reported by Reuters in 2018 that so many companies are rushing to get a piece of the pie, the cancer drug research market is overcrowded, which actually causes investors to stop and think before putting money into yet another research project. These pharmaceutical companies work closely with the FDA. After all, they can't sell their drugs without FDA approval. So for the last few decades, the FDA and pharmaceutical companies have been working hand-in-hand towards more and more effective treatments for cancer, as well as drugs with cancer-preventing or even cancer-curing properties. But not everyone believes that the FDA would ever approve a true magic bullet cure for cancer drug. Why? Well, look at the money. As we said before, pharmaceutical companies, or big pharma to use a term coined by conspiracy theorists 25 years ago, make a lot of money selling cancer treatment drugs. What would happen if all of a sudden a true cure for cancer popped up on the market? Every present and future cancer patient could pop a single pill, and the entire $100 billion oncology market would just dry up. This line of thinking has some people convinced that Big Pharma has an incentive to keep a cure off the market, and these companies pressure the FDA to suppress any potential cures. But that's not the full story or the full history. There were only a handful of laws regulating the safety of food and pharmaceuticals until 1906, when President Theodore Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drug Act. In the years just before this, Books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle had exposed the unsanitary realities of the meat processing industry, and numerous newspaper articles targeted the drug industry for selling medicines containing dangerous substances like opium or alcohol. Change needed to happen, and after Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drug Act, food and drugs became regulated in the United States for the first time. This was considered the birth of the FDA as we know it, and their role has only expanded since then. In 1938, Congress passed a series of laws known as the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. These laws were influenced by a tragedy that occurred in 1937, when more than 100 patients were poisoned to death by an improperly prepared antibacterial drug. Congress was forced to act quickly, and greatly expand the reach of the FDA, giving them the authority to regulate everything from food coloring to chewing gum, to homeopathic products to water bottles. To many, this seemed like the perfect solution to the lack of safety regulations, but not everyone was convinced. Economists like Milton Friedman were worried that the new regulations were biased against some potentially useful products, especially pharmaceuticals, because the risks for mistakenly approving a harmful drug outweighed the risks of wrongfully banning a helpful drug. Along those same lines, others were worried that the FDA was positioned to favor drug approval choices that would lead to the least amount of negative public attention, 
regardless of which drugs were actually most effective. Still others believed this newly empowered government agency would be easily influenced by outside money. For the right price, manufacturers could be able to buy a stamp of approval for a potentially unsafe product. Following this line of thought, empowering the FDA was tantamount to giving power to food and drug manufacturing companies. And with these new laws, the FDA now had an expansive reach, or even overreach as some people felt. Food, medicine, cosmetics, and more were now completely under the control of one government agency. How, exactly, was the FDA going to use this unprecedented power? Coming up, we'll dig into the exact kind of power the FDA now wielded, and whether or not that boded well for the Americans now learning to live under this kind of regulation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. After the 1938 passage of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the FDA was suddenly granted jurisdiction over multiple facets of American consumer life. While it seems like a lot of power for a single organization, it felt like a necessary step to protect the public from dangerous additives and pharmaceuticals. But some people felt like the FDA's new responsibilities bordered on overreach. The agency now had the power to decide which painkillers were on drugstore shelves and which treatments doctors could prescribe. They could even prevent American citizens from seeking out treatments they hadn't yet approved. At the same time, many people trusted the mission statement of the FDA to promote and protect public health. And by and large, that's what they did along with protecting the population from fake drugs like the OCI sting in Puerto Rico, they're also responsible for reviewing research on new medications, helping to bring new life-saving drugs to the market. But the problem with the FDA is that it's a big, big ship. As a government entity, it moves very slowly, sometimes taking years to approve a single drug. Things started changing in 1992 when the FDA and Congress failed to quickly and effectively respond to the AIDS crisis. During the epidemic, the FDA's lengthy drug approval process became a subject of scrutiny targeted at rallies like this one. Understand clearly our message. We march not just for AIDS, but for increased research for all life-threatening diseases. For people with cancer, we march with you today. 
for people with Alzheimer's, we march with you today. For people fighting heart disease, we march with you today. According to Douglas Crimp, an activist with the AIDS advocacy group ACT UP, the delays in the approval process, which sometimes lasted upwards of two years, were responsible for the thousands of AIDS-related deaths each year. ACT UP slogans, which included, quote, we die, they do nothing, end quote, and quote, we recognize every AIDS death as an act of racist, sexist, and homophobic violence, end quote, were directly aimed at the FDA. The FDA knew its process was taking too long, but they couldn't just snap their fingers and speed things up, especially not without cutting corners that could potentially harm millions of people. They needed more manpower than their congressional funding could give them. It was actually the demonstrations by ACT UP activists that finally inspired the FDA and Congress to create the Prescription Drug User Fee Act of 1992. The Prescription Drug User Fee Act set up a system that let the FDA collect fees directly from pharmaceutical companies to fund the drug approval process. Previously, the FDA had only been able to operate using the meager funding Congress earmarked for them annually. Under the new system, drug companies would pay a fee for their drug reviews, which the FDA would use to hire more workers and speed up the process. But there was pushback from pharmaceutical companies who worried that the fees collected from them wouldn't actually be used to benefit them. The FDA agreed to set target completion times for the approval process to ensure they were holding up their end of the bargain, and the law was passed. With this new system in place, the approval process was flying. The additional source of funding, along with congressional appropriations, helped the FDA do its job both faster and more efficiently. A 2002 U.S. General Accounting Office report noted that in eight years, the FDA was able to increase its drug review staff by 77%, and the median drug approval time dropped from over two years to just 14 months. I'd call that a success, if the only metric we're measuring is how fast the process moves. For the thousands of people with HIV and AIDS who needed immediate access to life-saving medications, speed was the most important metric. In the years since, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act has proven to be a necessary step to ensure American citizens have timely access to cutting-edge medical treatments. But it was also a controversial step, and it would eventually thrust the FDA under even more public scrutiny. For some, this new funding system could easily mean that the FDA is now in the pocket of Big Pharma. These worries over conflicts of interest or pay-for-play scandals are made worse by the fact that the FDA actually has been caught misbehaving more than once. In 2010, one of the largest drug makers in the world, AstraZeneca, presented clinical data on their new drug, Berlinta, which promised to prevent strokes and heart attacks. It was an exciting drug for the panel of medical researchers attending the presentation, and they approved it. The FDA has systems in place to root out any conflicts of interest that might crop up during these review panels. If any of the potential panelists had financial ties to the presenting drug company, they wouldn't be allowed to join. And in this particular panel, everything checked out. 
Berlinta went on to become what's called a blockbuster drug, a pharmaceutical that goes on to bring in millions or billions of dollars. And that's where things start to get tricky. While none of the voting panelists had any financial ties to AstraZeneca before the review, four of the doctors on the panel were handsomely rewarded by the company afterwards. One of the panelists, cardiologist Jonathan Halperin, was paid over $200,000 in the form of fees for work he did for AstraZeneca after the initial drug review vote. This is only one example of an ongoing pattern, according to a Science Magazine article from 2018. The FDA has no system in place to combat this type of pay-later conflict of interest, and it goes, quote, largely unnoticed and entirely unpoliced. By examining records from FDA panels and pharmaceutical companies from 2008 to 2014, the magazine found that these kind of pay-later conflicts are not only widespread, but the FDA has taken no measures to prevent them. So while there are supposedly systems in place to prevent conflicts of interest, those systems don't go far enough to actually stop the problem. How can we be sure that the FDA actually has the best interest of the public at heart when they've codified taking money from pharmaceutical companies in the form of funding and in the form of bribery? As it turns out, these conflicts of interest may not actually influence which drugs get approved. In fact, in 2018, Policy and Medicine published a study that found intense restrictions on conflicts of interest may actually do more harm than good. This study, conducted by the Law and Economics Center at George Mason Law School, found that, quote, limiting the number of conflicted experts who can serve on advisory committees presents its own costs associated with finding qualified, non-conflicted members and appointing less qualified members. Essentially, by barring the most qualified experts because of conflicts of interest, the panels end up being comprised of less qualified candidates. Additionally, the center found that, quote, decisions by advisory committees with conflicted members were more likely to be consistent with both the ultimate FDA decision as well as stock market predictions than non-conflicted advisory committees. Simply put, panels with conflicts of interest actually tend to do a better job than panels with no conflicts. For some, this study showed that all the fears about the FDA's potential for corruption and bribery were without merit. Not only does the FDA have systems in place to fight corruption, it may not even need those systems at all. But that doesn't mean that the funding system put in place by the Prescription Drug User Fee Act doesn't open up the FDA to any problems. As stipulated by the act, the FDA is now required to live up to certain benchmarks, whether it's in the public's interest or not. Here's Bart Stupak from the House Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee. PDUFA requires the FDA to quickly bring new drugs to the market. In its rush to approve new drugs, the FDA's ability to ensure a safe drug supply has been greatly compromised. As we mentioned before, one of the goals of the act was for the FDA to provide a ruling on new drug applications within one year. This was one of the more important stipulations for the pharmaceutical companies. Without holding the FDA to benchmarks, 
there was no way to ensure the fees would be properly earmarked. But forcing the FDA to meet these time limits could cause problems of their own. Among medical professionals, there were worries that the FDA may need to cut corners during the drug review process in order to meet that one-year benchmark. After PDUFA passed, the FDA offered multiple expedited review processes. Priority review, which resulted in a six-month review process, as well as fast-track, accelerated approval, and breakthrough therapy, all of which intended to get drugs on the market faster. In a 2017 opinion article in the British Medical Journal, Peter Doshi, assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, questioned the merits of this new expedited system. According to Doshi, a study conducted by the British Medical Journal itself found that, quote, drugs approved through expedited regulatory pathways were associated with a 7 to 106% higher rate change to important sections of drug safety labeling and less than 5% of the changes described reduced risk to patients. What that means is that drugs pushed through these speedy approval processes were more likely to have additional safety warnings added after they were put on the market than drugs that went through the regular process. Other studies have found similar findings. In 2017, the Mayo Clinic published a study that questioned whether new cancer drugs rushed to market were actually helping patients live longer. The study found that between 2009 and 2014, 56% of cancer drugs approved under the FDA's accelerated approval program, quote, did not have supporting evidence backing overall survival benefit. By comparison, 37% of non-accelerated drugs were lacking evidence proving survival benefit. Still not a great figure, but much lower than the accelerated program. Well, the question is, is this just an unfortunate result of the hasty approval process? Or are certain pharmaceutical companies actually pumping out ineffective drugs with the FDA's help for their own profit? When we come back, we'll examine how Big Pharma pressures the FDA to feed the billion-dollar cancer treatment market. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Now, back to the story. It seems like pharmaceutical companies have the motive and means to put pressure on the FDA to approve new treatments, hoping each one will be a billion-dollar blockbuster. The faster they can get drugs onto the market, the faster they can start making money. And the FDA has to live up to this pressure, as outlined by their agreements in the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. It makes me wonder what other kinds of pressure Big Pharma might put on the FDA. 
As we mentioned earlier, the cancer drug market in the United States alone is approaching $100 billion per year. That's all money cancer patients pay for medications, treatments, and side effect management. Relatively few cancers have a cure, and many oncology doctors still prefer to use the more conservative term, remission, even for cancer patients who have been cancer-free for years. Even if we assume pharmaceutical companies have the purest motivations, from a business perspective, anything that might slow that money train down would be bad news. Which raises the question, if medical researchers uncovered a cure for a disease as common and profitable as cancer, would Big Pharma have an incentive to bury that magic bullet? While some people believe pharmaceutical companies have an incentive to hide cures for diseases like cancer in order to keep making money from treatment drugs, it's worth noting that a possible cure for cancer would probably become a blockbuster drug of the highest order. As Michael Little from Good News Network points out, quote, if you operate a pharmaceutical company that has a cure for all forms of cancer, what would you do? Would any for-profit business keep it quiet and release incrementally better drugs without any guarantee of making back the money they've invested? It seems like an easy choice. Take the billions along with the Nobel Prize and your place in history. Speaking of history, if we're going to get into the relationship between Big Pharma, the FDA, and cancer treatment, it would help for us to start at the beginning. Cancer isn't actually one single disease. It's a grouping of over 100 types of diseases marked by an abnormal growth of cells, ranging from the well-known breast or skin cancers to more rare forms such as multiple myeloma. Almost 2 million people per year are diagnosed with cancer in the United States alone, and over 500,000 people die of cancer per year. Cancer is so common among humans, about one in three people will receive a diagnosis in their lifetime. And it isn't a modern phenomenon. Cancer has affected humans since the beginning. In fact, we've discovered descriptions of cancer on ancient Egyptian papyrus, dating from around 2500 BCE. As long as the disease has been around, humans have needed to treat it. While the Egyptians preferred cauterization, a method in which the afflicted area is burned away, the ancient Greeks preferred humor theory, trying to balance the four fluids of the body, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. Treatments under this theory included everything from dietary changes and herbal medicines to laxatives and emetics, blistering the skin with hot irons or even bloodletting. It's safe to say these early treatments would not live up to today's FDA standards. It took a while for treatments to improve, until fairly recently, doctors and researchers had no way of knowing what exactly cancer was or what caused it. During the early 1700s, it was assumed that acidic lymph fluid was the culprit. Other doctors believed cancer was a type of poison or that it was contagious. Finally, when the use of microscopes became more widespread, the process of metastasis the spread of a pathogen from an initial site to a second site was discovered and humanity was on its way to discovering proper cancer treatments. 
surgery became a main mode of cancer treatment, and as science and technology improved, researchers landed on the well-known cancer treatments we use today, chemotherapy, radiation, and immunotherapy. But up until the creation of the FDA in 1906, treatments were not regulated by a centralized governing body, and because of this, many Americans fell victim to unscientific or quack treatments. These treatments included urine therapy, that is, consuming your own urine, colon cleansing through laxatives and enemas, and even consuming herbs known to promote tumor growths. Some of these practices are still used in alternative medicine communities today. Actual licensed doctors and medical researchers have come to a much more sophisticated understanding of cancer, but they still haven't found a single magic bullet cure. Current wisdom holds that no such cure may be possible at all. As mentioned before, cancer is a complex condition with over 100 different types, all affecting different parts of the body in vastly different ways. According to neuro-oncologist Dr. Roger Stoop, We are very careful in oncology talking about cure. Uh, because uh, tumors may recur also uh, later on. But the objective is uh, to maintain quality of life, maintain activity, maintain independence. Some cancers, like breast or lymph cancers, cause tumors to grow inside the body. Others, like multiple myeloma, form holes in bones. And still others, like basal cell carcinoma, simply form bumps that don't spread and can be safely removed in an outpatient procedure. Whatever the cancer, and no matter how rare, we currently have some way to at least attempt to treat it. And while certain cancers, such as pancreatic or mesothelioma, have very low survival rates, pharmaceutical companies can at least help patients manage pain and feel more comfortable. Given the complex nature of cancer, it's very unlikely we'll ever discover a single, one-size-fits-all cure. Just like there's no single cure for all the problems that can happen to your teeth or your brain or your heart, there's unlikely to be a single treatment for all the different kinds of abnormal cell growth. But that doesn't stop researchers from trying. With diseases like cancer, which affects a third of the population and sometimes has mortality rates as high as 100%, pharmaceutical companies have a lot of incentive, both financially and morally, to continue working to find better treatments. It's important for the FDA to work alongside them, ensuring these treatments are actually safe and effective. As we've said before, the FDA has faced criticism in the past for rushing drugs through the review process. But they've also been able to keep a number of ineffective and sometimes dangerous treatments from making their way onto the market. Earlier we touched on the idea of urine therapy as a form of cancer treatment. As disgusting as it sounds, urine therapy is still used around the world, even right here in the United States. Let's be clear, there is no scientific evidence that drinking urine is an effective treatment for any illness, including cancer. In fact, it can be incredibly dangerous. Urine is a waste product, which our bodies work to expel for a reason. Often, it can be contaminated with bacteria that cause problems of their own like strep and staph infection. 
Urine also contains salt, ammonia, and other potentially harmful toxins in concentrated amounts. Reingesting those substances can put extra stress on the body's natural detoxification organs, like the liver and kidney, as they're forced to refilter the concentrated toxins a second time. For anyone with a compromised immune system or a weakened constitution, for example, a cancer patient, ingesting these toxins can damage an already ill body. Harmful treatments like these present a threat to public health and catch the FDA's attention. One high-profile example is the Berzinski Clinic in Texas. The clinic, founded by Stanislaw Berzinski, a PhD graduate from the Medical Academy in Lublin, claims to have developed an experimental cancer treatment known as antineoplaston therapy. Antineoplaston refers to urine-derived peptides. Brzezinski developed the treatment in the 1970s and continues to treat people with it today, claiming great success with his patients. However, there's no evidence supporting these claims of success. Independent scientists haven't been able to reproduce Brzezinski's reported results, and no evidence from randomized trials shows antineoplastons have any ability to treat or cure cancer. Unsurprisingly, the Brzezinski Clinic has faced criticisms over their lack of evidence, as well as the treatment's high cost, around $9,000 a month per patient. Brzezinski himself has almost had his medical license revoked and been at the center of multiple lawsuits. In 2009, the FDA formally warned the Brzezinski Clinic that their unapproved treatments were unlawful. After an investigation, the FDA found that the clinic did not take proper precautions to minimize risk to patients, did not continue reviews for their studies, and did not provide written procedures or documents to the FDA. In 2012, the FDA found that the clinic was still failing to comply with necessary guidelines and possibly harming patients with their unapproved methods. And yet, the clinic remained open with no legal repercussions. The FDA investigated the Brzezinski Clinic again in 2013 after a child patient died while receiving treatment. Since then, the clinic and the FDA have been in what amounts to a game of tug of war. The Brzezinski Clinic trying to peddle its unscientific treatments and the FDA working to stop them. But the clinic is still open, despite the multiple warnings, investigations, and violations. It makes you wonder how hard the FDA is actually trying to shut them down. Well, some people believe Stanislaw Brzezinski must have some serious pull with some powerful people. In 2014, David Gorski, a surgical oncologist and skeptical journalist, was outraged after the FDA decided to allow a small group of cancer patients to receive access to Brzezinski's treatments. In an article on science-based medicine, Gorski wrote, quote, these organizations are supposed to protect the public from practitioners like Brzezinski, but all too often, they fail at their charges, in this case, spectacularly. Why would the FDA, which is responsible for protecting and promoting public health, allow the Brzezinski Clinic to treat patients with at best ineffective or at worst harmful pseudo-scientific treatments? And if the relatively tiny Brzezinski Clinic can operate outside without repercussions, 
What could billion-dollar pharmaceutical companies do? Does Big Pharma have the power to pressure the FDA into letting them sell ineffective or harmful treatments in the name of profit? It's not a far-fetched concern. In fact, in 1969, the former commissioner of the FDA, Dr. Herbert L. Lee Jr., was quoted in the New York Times saying that during his tenure, he was under, quote, constant, tremendous, sometimes unmerciful pressure, end quote, from pharmaceutical companies. Dr. Lee was an American physician, Harvard alum, and World War II vet, eventually appointed commissioner of the FDA by President Lyndon B. Johnson. But Lee's time at the FDA was turbulent and short. He was ousted after only a year and a half. The FDA grew drastically under Dr. Lee's brief tenure, but also faced growing pains as he went to bat with unscrupulous pharmaceutical companies trying to bypass FDA guidelines. Lee clashed repeatedly with drug manufacturers, and by the end of his tenure, more than 300 drugs had been taken off the market after being deemed ineffective. After his removal in 1969, Dr. Lee spoke candidly about his concerns that the FDA was putting public health at risk due to pressure from Big Pharma. He said, quote, The thing that bugs me is that the people think the FDA is protecting them. It isn't. What the FDA is doing and what the public thinks it's doing are as different as night and day. More recent criticisms of the FDA coming from those within are rare, but they do happen. In 2005, Dr. David Graham, a senior scientist within the FDA's Office of Drug Safety, told CBS News, quote, I know that FDA is responsible for 100,000 people being injured, and FDA wants to keep that swept under the rug nice and quiet. Specifically, Dr. Graham was referencing Vioxx, a painkiller the FDA left on the market for five years even when presented with evidence that the drug increased the risk of both heart attacks and strokes. Graham said, FDA still makes um, bad decisions when it comes to patient safety because it favors um, unsafe medicines in the interests of industry over those of the patients it's there to protect. But why would the FDA knowingly leave dangerous drugs on the market? Well, as the CBS article reported, quote, Part of the problem is the way the FDA is funded. Approximately half of the FDA budget comes from the drug industry itself in the form of fees paid to speed up the process of drug approval, end quote. So we're back to the issue of big pharma funding and therefore being able to pressure the FDA. And people within the FDA are calling out this problem. It goes even deeper than that. Dr. Graham also accused the FDA itself of using intimidation tactics against scientists that questioned the safety of various fast-track drugs, an allegation the FDA denies. Dr. Graham said that, quote, FDA has a system in place now that will guarantee that unsafe drugs will remain on the market. The people who approve the drug in the first place take pride in the fact that they've brought a drug to the market. This is their baby. Regardless of the criticism, the FDA continues to approve more and more treatments for diseases like cancer, hoping each one might save lives, and some of them actually look pretty promising. In 2019, 
A team of Israeli scientists from Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Limited announced they were closing in on a cure to end all cancers. AEB's chairman, Dan Eridor, stated, quote, We believe we will offer in a year's time a complete cure for cancer. The drug, called Mutato, which stands for multi-target toxin, was referred to as, quote, on the scale of a cancer antibiotic, a disruption technology of the highest order. Dan Eridor went on to explain, quote, Our cancer cure will be effective from day one, will last a duration of a few weeks, and will have no or minimal side effects at a much lower cost than other treatments on the market. It's an incredible breakthrough, but if you think it sounds too good to be true, well, you're not alone. Dr. Len Lichtfield, chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society, said, quote, It goes without saying, we all share aspirational hope that they are correct. Unfortunately, we must be aware that this is far from proven as an effective treatment for people with cancer, let alone a cure. Before it can be called a cure, Mutato must be subject to peer review and clinical trials. Still, these breakthroughs highlight just how far we've come. Only a few decades ago, most cancers were a gruesome death sentence. Today, even though they require intensive treatment, some cancers are borderline curable. Who knows what other breakthroughs are on the horizon? But even promising potential cures like Mutato still have to face the scrutiny of the FDA before they can enter the market for patient use. And some people believe that a true cure for all cancers, like the one Mutato claims to be, would never meet approval from the FDA. All because of the financial hit Big Pharma could take if the cancer treatment market were to suddenly dry up. But that line of thinking veers into conspiracy theory territory. So we'll wrap up the first part of our discussion here. Next week, we'll explore some of the conspiracy theories surrounding the FDA, Big Pharma, and cancer. Conspiracy theory number one. A cure for cancer has already been discovered, but Big Pharma coerces the FDA to keep it secret via bribery so they can continue selling expensive cancer treatments. Conspiracy theory number two. Rich, elite families like the Rockefellers manipulate the FDA and pharmaceutical companies into keeping possible cures for cancer either illegal or secret. Some believe these elite groups even intentionally cause cancer in the general public so they can carry out their depopulation agenda. And conspiracy theory number three. Charitable organizations like Susan G. Komen or the Live Strong Foundation actually profit off of cancer patients and they exert their power to suppress any cures for cancer so that they can continue making money off charitable donations. Understanding the relationship between the FDA and Big Pharma is complicated. Understanding what it takes to cure cancer is even more complicated. And with all the controversy and scandal there's been surrounding these entities, it's easy to see why conspiracy theorists might be suspicious. We'll unpack those ideas next time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kayla Westergaard-Dobson and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 